right. I got a lot of stuff. Look at me. Um, we're going to start, uh, Abby just shared, and be paying attention. It's the holiday season. It's a be- wonderful time to bless people. Uh, but we've been doing that as a church. So our Samaritan boxes were due today. I hope if you were going to do one, you brought it in. And we just want to pray over these. I uh, just pray that God would uniquely deliver them to the appointed kid. So if you want to just bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do dedicate these gifts. We do not bring them um, just flippantly, I guess. We bring them with care and with hope uh, that you would use uh, these small offerings that we bring to bring joy, to bring hope, uh, to help these kids be seen. Um, And we picked things out um, trying to be filled with love, but we pray, Lord, that you would direct our gifts to the perfect kid. (laughs) Um, And we're grateful to participate. Uh, We can be generous because you have first been generous with us, and we are grateful for that. Amen. All right. um, I get to tie my shoe while I'm talking to you. (laughs) Um, So we, uh, I do a discipleship pathway I call Formed. I've been doing Formed by Story, which is kind of an offshoot of what uh, Formed is. Formed is going to start either end of January or early February. There are a lot of new faces, and Formed is a great kind of first step for people. You'll get to know a little bit more about what makes us us and some of the language that we use and how we view discipleship. And during Formed, I talk about how if you're going to walk with Jesus, I think Stu said it at the very beginning if you were here, across you we say, come as you are, but don't stay where you are. Uh, that, that God has more for you, if you will, <laughs> and you'll change. There's things about you that will change. We talk about how your posture will change, your practices. Some of your practices will change, and your paradigm or your perspective will change. And I talk about Brussels sprouts, how my perspective of Brussels sprouts changed. I'll hold that for formed. Um, as I was thinking about the sermon this week and a way to interact, and it's the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I was thinking, you know, my view of turkeys has changed since 2021. If you've been around Crossview, if you're newer, you wouldn't know this, but last year, three male turkeys decided to make our property their property. And my part of my job became herding these things and getting them away from small children or, it doesn't matter, male or female, who was afraid of these birds because... They are big birds, and they come right up on you. And uh, actually, I I was thinking about this. I haven't seen them. The female turkeys will still run by, but I haven't seen a male turkey all year. So part of me, Brooke, if you were here, Brooke got me a badge that says Crossview Church Turkey Sheriff, Illinois. Um, But I have not retired my badge because in my mind, these turkeys are just waiting until I retire that thing to come back. Um, But because of my encounter with turkeys last year, I think about turkeys differently. I mean, just as you live life, things happen. You think about things differently. I'll move from silly things like Brussels sprouts and turkeys to some more serious things, maybe really serious things. I also think on my journey of following Jesus, I think about sorrow differently. I think about sadness differently. I think about pain differently differently. 
One of the things I like to say, both because it's true and also because I think as a pastor who serves at this church, you would be happy to hear this. I am more excited about Jesus than I've ever been. And some of the reason I say that is because eight years ago, I don't know how to, I mean, I don't, I, I lack language in a sense because because Christ called me to follow him years and years and years ago, called me into vocational ministry years and years and years ago. But eight years ago, wow, a pastor, Jesus started a new thing in my life. I just call it my Jesus journey. I lack language. But one of the critical pieces, if I try to narrate what, what happened eight years ago, one of the things that happened is I started to view sorrow differently. Actually, I changed some practices. I started to lament. This biblical tool, resource, we call immense. I think about sorrow differently. It's changed my life. It's opened my life up for Jesus to do some new things. That's kind of what we're going to talk about this morning, if you will. And I'll just say a few things. You already know this. I'm not saying this to you as if I think you're unaware. But we do overlook it and forget. Our culture, uh, we at Crossview, again, our, our language for talking, our biblical language for trying to talk about the world we live in, and we call it Babylon. Babylon is obsessed with being happy all the time. We have, I think we could say, an immature obsession with being happy all the time. It's Babylonian, it's in our culture, and it seeps into the church. It's a Babylonian tool designed to keep you where you are. We say, come, but don't stay. Babylon says, no, just stay. It's a Babylonian lie to keep your soul shallow. Babylon loves a shallow soul. Because shallow souls are (laughs) self-centered. Easily numbed to not really live, even though you're alive. It's Babylon. Those who are happy all the time, they have a shallow soul. And sometimes when it creeps into the church, I worry, have we without thinking replaced the cross with a smiley face? I'll just take off my cross necklace. That's a little too too extreme. Just give me a smiley face t-shirt. Just happy all the time. And some expressions of Christianity today are, are, just at least feel like a manufactured enthusiasm. And some kind of underlying thought that I have to prove the validity of the gospel by maintaining a fake happiness. Uh, At Crossview, we aren't aiming at what we say sometimes, a happy, clappy culture or an easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity. That's an artificial facade of happiness. And if you are new to Crossview, we will do our best not to pressure you to be happy when you're not. Because that just keeps your soul shallow. Now, many of us, we're aware that this is happening in our culture, but it makes us uncomfortable because we are uncomfortable with pain and sadness and sorrow. And so instead of weeping together, we just want to cheer each other. I'll just cheer up. Just cheer up. Cheer up. Nobody wants this sad. It's uncomfortable. Let's just cheer up. 
and it keeps us shallow and there's no growth. You can't just ignore your pain. It won't go away. I say this. I'll say this again in a little bit. You can't go around your pain. Eventually, you have to go through it. I've, I've been a pastor long enough to know people who are avoiding their pain, it just runs alongside of you and it's just waiting. When are you going to come over? When are you going to, I mean, you can't go around it. You have to go through it. And I mean, sometimes we look at the pain of others and we're like, that's contagious. Stay away. That's... And either like I've worked hard to get in a happy season, don't mess it up. Or I feel guilty that I'm in a happy season and you're not, and I don't know how to approach you. So we're just uncomfortable with sadness and sorrow. Well, what I want to say this morning is, and I think it's a critical piece of discipleship, sorrow makes room for thanksgiving. Sorrow makes room for thanksgiving. If you really want to be happy and joyful and thankful on Thursday, you can't just avoid your pain. Or it's just a manufactured happy facade. <laughs> and you're not getting to the core of what you're really grateful for. Let's uh, turn. We're going to primarily be in John chapter 16. But I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Just because it'll, it'll make it. We're in a series. It's our last week in our series. But we've been trying to look at uh, what the New Testament has to say about this meal that we celebrate as a church. And a passage we've returned to again and again and again for tons of reasons is 1 Corinthians 11. I'll just read the beginning part here, verse 23. I love this line. Paul says, I pass on to you what I receive from the Lord himself. I love that. Risen Jesus. He says, on the night when I was betrayed, or as we talked about earlier, the night when Jesus handed himself over. On the night when, I was betray- when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and what does it say? Gave thanks to God for it. What? I mean, Jesus knows what's going on. The night he's betrayed, the night he hands himself over, he's telling the disciples, this is my body broken and my blood shed. And he gives thanks to God in the midst of it. Now that's why when we talk about this meal, you can call it communion. You can call it the Lord's Supper because he's the host, or you can call it the Eucharist. It's a fancy liturgical word. You sound really smart when you use it. Yeah, I had the Eucharist today. It just means Thanksgiving. It just means Thanksgiving because Jesus gives thanks. Thanksgiving, one of the things that I hope, I guess I've got a few things that I hope run through this together. But, but one of the things I want to talk about is sometimes sorrow, thanksgiving, and joy all go together. And sometimes in the midst of our sorrow, we can discover that life is still beautiful. That life is a gift to be lived. And we practice gratitude and thanksgiving to remind ourselves to pause long enough to remember that God really has provided my daily bread. And everything I really, really need and everything I really, really want, the good shepherd has made available for me. Now you can forget that because there are a million Babylonian voices saying, you're not complete if you don't own this. You're not full unless whatever this is, is a little bit bigger. (laughs) You're not whole unless you have a little bit more. And sometimes for our own sanity... (laughs) Just pause and say, no, no, Jesus has given me enough. Thank you, Jesus. And see what that does to your soul. (laughs) Let's see. 
Well, we're going to work our way through John 16. What I wanted to do, I just, and I'd never done this before, but since we're talking about the table, what does Jesus tell his disciples at the table? So the Last Supper is really the model. It's where Jesus kind of gives us this idea of the Lord's Supper. What does he say at the table? So John 16, it's kind of the end. John 17 is really the end of this section in the Gospel of John. Five chapters of conversation. In, in, a, in a book that's 21 chapters, five of them are the conversation at the Last Supper. Uh, chapter 17 is a prayer that we may actually look at in our next series. But I'm going to give you an overview. You'll see what we're going to hone in on. We'll hone in on the second part. But I want to give you a feeling for what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 16. We'll pick up in verse 1, and you'll see we're not talking about Brussels sprouts and turkeys. This is really serious. I've told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. I mean, that should get your attention. For you will be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service for God. This is because they have never known the Father or me. Yes, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you for a while longer. Jesus is saying it's going to be really hard. Again, this is why you can't replace the cross with a smiley face. And this is why a happy, clappy version of easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity isn't really Jesus-centric. Because Jesus doesn't say, well, you're just going to be able to chill on a couch and eat grapes all day. That's not what he says here. I mean, that's just what he's telling his disciples. Now, it's going to be hard, but there is joy and there is room for thanksgiving. Why? Well, because God doesn't just abandon you or me. Verse 5, now I am going away to the one who sent me, and not one of you is asking where I am going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away. It's good for you. I know what I'm doing. I remember a pastor saying a few years ago, you and I, we we would be in a constant posture of gratitude when we pray if we really trusted the goodness of God and believed that he gives us exactly what we would ask for if we knew what he knows and we loved how he loves. Jesus says, it's good for you. Trust me. You don't want me to leave, but trust me, it's good for you. Uh, He says, if I don't, the advocate won't come. And if I do go away, then I will send him to you. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It's one of the places where they have a little asterisk, and you drop down to the bottom. It actually tells you the Greek word is paraclete. It's a word that doesn't directly translate into English. And so different tra- you're, you're always trying to find the right translation for this word because sometimes it's encourager, sometimes it's counselor, sometimes it's advocate, and sometimes, and for the sake of this morning, it is appropriate to lean into sometimes it's comforter. Jesus says, good, it's going to be hard. And this be... We'll keep this before us all the way through this morning. It's going to be hard for you, but I'm sending one who will comfort. Maybe some of the question we'll ask this morning is, will you be the kind of person who sorrows and opens your life up so that the comforter can comfort you? Well, as I was studying and reading, I read this. I loved it. Talking about the Holy Spirit, one author said this, the Spirit truly is graceful. Always acts, always exactly as forceful or as gentle as we need. Undoing all that is not right without in any way harming us. 
That's what the comforter does. I love that. Well, the next few verses, again, we're going to kind of go through this. Jesus was a sermon for another day, but Jesus says the Spirit is coming to do things. That's all you need to know right now. Spirit's coming to do things. And then he picks up in verse 12. There's so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. But when the Holy Spirit, the, the paraclete, the advocate, the comforter, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will tell you what he has heard. It's interesting. Well, what, what does he hear? He will tell you about the future. Well, where, 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 where does he hear this? Verse, verse, 16, verse 14. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. It's such a central verse. What is the ministry of the Spirit of God to elevate the Son? So I will tell you this, because we, we, we take the Trinity pretty seriously, but we, we may talk about Jesus more than anyone else. But, but what Jesus is saying here is you are a spirit-filled church if you lift up the Son, <laughs> if you glorify Jesus, because that's what the Spirit is doing, and you're participating in his work. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. That's what the Spirit is doing. Down to verse 19. Again, there's more going on, but we'll hone in on what we're going to focus on. Jesus realized they wanted to ask him about these things he was saying. Are you asking yourselves what I meant? I said in a little while you won't see me, but a little while after that you will see me again. And then he says this. I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me. But the world, Babylon, will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. It will be like a woman suffering the pains of labor. When her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she has brought a new baby, new life into the world. So you have Sorrow now. You have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and then you will rejoice. And this is a joy no one can take from you. This is not what the advertisers are selling you. This is untouchable joy. Now, again, he's got more to say. Again, if I preach the whole chapter, we'd be here all day, and I can already smell the turkey. We don't want to do that. But verse 33, this is how Jesus ends this conversation with the disciples in the upper room. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. I'll come back to that. Here on earth, you will have many trials and you will have many sorrows. But take heart. Take courage, be comforted, be strengthened, because I have overcome the world. Amen. Amen. You can clap for that. That's Jesus. So let me say this. I feel like you guys want to hear this right here. (laughs) When peace can be found nowhere else, peace can be found in Jesus. And it is worth stopping to ask, how much is peace worth? As a pastor, I mean, I, listen, I think peace is worth everything. What people really want, and I don't care whether it's you or your neighbor. People want peace of mind. People want peace of heart. 
and peace of soul. And what Jesus is saying, you will have trials, you will have sorrows, and when peace can be found nowhere else, it can be found in Jesus. Now there's two layers to this. The first layer, he's talking to the immediate context of those first disciples. Obviously, he's preparing them for the crucifixion and the resurrection that's about to happen. But you can tell he goes beyond that because when people come to kill you, right, he's getting into the early church and he's talking also to the generations that will follow. Because even though we don't live through the crucifixion and resurrection, we live during a time where Jesus has ascended and he's seated at the right hand of the Father and we are awaiting his return and the world is not the way it's supposed to be. We await his return. And in the the middle, in in the waiting... We talked about this a couple weeks ago. There is a kind of heartbreak that leads to despair. We called that breaking bad. And we all experience. We've all broken bad. But there's also a kind of sorrowing that's purifying. And we called that breaking good. You can, under all the pressures in this world, in the midst of troubles and sorrows, you can break good. (laughs) And we all, I'm sure everyone in here has at least one story where your heart's broken in a way that was clarifying and cleansing. You wept tears of deep and real pain and sorrow, but it cleansed you. It didn't make you despair. What else do we read? We read that weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It seems Jesus is saying there's something about the sorrow that prepares us for greater joy. Somehow, the sorrow makes room for thanksgiving. Somehow, you and I need to sorrow to create space to receive the good things that God wants to give us. Sometimes, sorrow is where we take all the junk that we've grasped and seized on our own because it was good in our own eyes. And the sorrow is where we like, okay, that's off the shelf. And now I have room for Jesus' good gifts. Every good gift comes from the Father above. Weeping allows us to come to terms with reality, to life as it actually is. If, if we're talking about Good Friday and Easter Sunday, you could say that weeping is it's that Holy Saturday space. We are gestating for what is to come. What is going to be the joy in the morning is taking shape in us in the night as we come to terms with reality. And the gift of tears often comes when we break good. It comes as a gift of cleansing for our perception so we can see what God is doing in the world. Because he's entering into the pain and the sorrow to bring comfort and healing. Now, another thing we say frequently here, because I think it's important as we talk about a mysterious God, (laughs) we confess more than we can explain, and mature Christians hold things in tension. You have to learn to hold things in tension. One of the places where you can feel some of the tension is when you talk about a God who suffers. You get into theological circles, and theologians like to talk about the impassibility of God. God never changes. But then again, we have a God who's revealed himself as Jesus on the cross, suffering and dying for us. And so it creates a conversation. Hold things in tension. We're not going to dive deep into that. But I, I, I do want to present it and say a few things as we drive closer. Just, just hang with me. We'll do a little big picture and then you'll feel it. 
But God suffers, he does, but he suffers in ways that don't change him. It changes what he's suffering. It's not that the father simply suffers like we suffer because then he wouldn't be God. But it's not that he can't be touched by what touches us because then he wouldn't be our God and our Savior. Or let me say it this way to drive it a little bit closer to home. Nothing happens to Jesus except what he wants to happen differently for us. (laughs) Jesus submits to these experiences. I told you the Greek word, the night he was betrayed, actually it was the night he handed himself over. These, these experiences, Jesus submits to these experiences. He lets these things happen to him, but they're changed by what happens, not Jesus. Or let me say it this way and then you'll feel it. When Jesus entered death, death changed, not Jesus. Jesus gets the last word. In other words, your suffering doesn't get to define you. And your sorrow doesn't get to define you. Because if you learn how to let Jesus enter into your pain, he will change those for you. That's what he does. That's what God does. In Christ, life always has the last word. Now, as I said earlier, you can't go around your pain. You have to go through it. But I want to be clear, you don't have to eliminate your sorrow for joy to be possible. To choose joy is to see all existence as a gift, and and joy is often a choice. Which is why why the practice of joy is inseparable from the practice of gratitude. Gratitude gives birth to joy because gratitude teaches us to receive life as a gift in the moment we're in, Regardless of what lies ahead, the good shepherd is with me even in the valley of the shadow of death. Joy is always possible, even in the midst of sorrow. But again, we're not happy clappy. To practice joy is not to cultivate optimism, to affect cheerfulness, or to downplay pain. What it is, though, is to intentionally and habitually open ourselves up to the unconditional and surprisingly wonderful, amazingly healing love of God. And I was thinking about this. I don't think, I didn't get taught this at seminary, but I do a lot of pastoral counseling. I I love it. I feel like it's a privilege. I always feel privileged when any of you meet with me and trust me with your story. And in the back of my mind, I've over the years, I've developed, it's almost like I can almost see it. I've got this hope meter (laughs) and I'm listening and I'm always, is there hope? Can we find out? Because if we have hope, if we can can find hope in Jesus, we're going to be fine. I'm always looking for hope. And I'm also always kind of like, are people being honest? Are they, do I, do I see, do they, are they, are they fall, are they, are they finding strength in Jesus? And are they able, even in the midst of deep pain and sadness and disappointment, are they able to find one or two things that they're thankful for from God? I've actually been thinking, because I wonder, how do you measure the healthiness of a church? How do you do that? Is it just, is it just financial giving and attendance? Is that the only way we can measure the health of a church? And I've been thinking, you know what? I I mean, I don't know how to show this with slides. But when I meet with people who are in the midst of pain and sorrow and sadness, do I see hope? 
And do I see gratitude? And here's what I'll tell you, church. Crossview is a healthy church. <laughs> you can clap for that too. I mean, it's just, that's not me. That's you guys. Every time I sit with you, I see hope. Every time. Every time. Sometimes I don't even have to ask for it. You just tell me. Let me tell you what Jesus did. You know, this is going on and I need a box of Kleenex to talk about this. But Jesus is still doing this in the midst of my life. I say, we're a healthy church. <laughs> God is moving in our midst. Well, what Jesus says here at the end of his ministry in John chapter 16, or his earthly ministry, we could say, he also already taught at the beginning. I'm going to turn just one, one more passage, just a quick one. You guys know I love the Beatitudes. So you can read John 16, but we can also just read Matthew 5 verse 4. I think this will give us another layer as we try to understand what it means that sorrow makes room for thanksgiving. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus says, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying in John 16. He's already said it in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I want to dive a little deeper into this this morning. This isn't an instruction. He's not telling you to do anything. He's simply making an announcement. It's not an instruction to be mournful. It's good news that when you are mournful, you'll be comforted. And so let me say it this way. Again, this, is, this becomes the problem with easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity. Is, is when you're afraid to be mournful, you've closed the door to the good comforter coming to you, which is your only hope and your only life. So let me say it this way. If you're not a mourner and you never want to mourn and your plan is to go through life always content and arrange it in a way so that you never feel sadness and pain and you never mourn, then I guess I can say good luck. But Jesus is not announcing anything to you here. There's no good news for you here. He has nothing to say to you if you refuse to mourn. Because it's only those who mourn who are comforted. I mean, it's an, it's an incredible paradox, right? Blessed and happy are those who are not blessed and happy. But the only reason you'll be blessed and you'll know joy and you'll be happy is because something is going to happen. The Spirit is going to comfort you. My favorite paraphrase of this beatitude is this. Blessed are those who mourn and grieve, for they create space to encounter comfort from another. Comfort comes to us as an encounter with someone who brings comfort. The Holy Spirit is the comforter sent from Jesus to you. <laughs> and let me read what I read earlier. The Spirit truly is graceful. Listen to this. Always exactly as forceful or as gentle as you need. Undoing all that is not right without in any way harming you. What a comforter. Open yourself up to God and he will undo anything that is not right without harming you. What a comforter. What a God. It's through the work of grief, and it really is work. If you've ever tried to grieve, it's work. 
It's through the work of grief that we create this space so that we can encounter another. And in the process of mourning and sorrow and grief, which I know no one likes, I don't like it. I am well-versed in the Babylonian ways of avoiding pain. I'm well-versed. But something changed eight years ago. And I'm more excited about Jesus than I've ever been. (laughs) But in this process, what happens is a depth is carved into your soul. Yes, it hurts. And yes, it's painful. But God promises to fill this large void that has been carved out with something good from him. Now, I know it's easy as we talk about God, it's easy to, well, God allows bad things to happen. Yes, he does. And there's some mystery in this. We're awaiting the return of Jesus. As we wait, he allows bad things to happen. But don't get so focused on the fact that he allows bad things to happen to forget that he also does good things. And he sends the Holy Spirit, he sends a comforter to you to strengthen you and heal you and hold you while you go through hard times. If you never grieve, you you will not develop the capacity to receive and experience the fullness of joy that God wants to give. In other words, when I talk about a shallow soul, what I mean is God has a, a, I don't know, a 50-gallon bucket, a barrel of joy he wants to pour into your soul. But if you never grieve, you've just got that little communion cup. You understand God's pouring all this joy and all you catch is a little communion cup. But if you will sorrow and grieve and allow the Spirit of God to carve a depth into you and then fill it with good, guess what? Your communion cup is going to become a coffee mug, is going to become a big gulp, (laughs) it's going to become a swimming pool. And then, and then, and then you will know joy that you didn't even know possible because God has enlarged your soul. I mean, that's what he does. And if you spend time with Jesus in grief, you may make the most amazing discovery. The discovery that despite the horrors and injustice and pain and sorrow of this world, life is still beautiful. In fact, these are four things maybe you take with you. You meditate on this and you see how this leads you to Jesus. Life is beautiful. Joy is possible. Peace is real. And sorrow makes room for thanksgiving. Life is beautiful. Joy is possible. Peace is real. It's something you can have in Christ. You can have peace. You can have it. It's real. It's there. And sorrow makes room for Thanksgiving. And I want to share a story with you. We'll close with a story. It's about a lady I'm just learning about. I I know just a little bit. I don't know everything about. It's a lady named Eddie Halisam. Maybe you've heard of her. I'll tell you a little bit about her. We know about her because of her diary. Uh, She was a Dutch Jewish religious thinker. And she had a profound spiritual transformation at the age of 27. Uh, She, it's actually interesting when you get into like what was happening in Europe. (laughs) Uh, A lot of people had spiritual experiences reading Fyodor Dostoevsky. It's pretty cool. 
but that's her story. She was reading Dostoevsky at the age of 27. She had a spiritual transformation. She read the New Testament. She would have said the Gospel of Matthew was her favorite. She became fascinated by Jesus. World War II breaks out. The Germans invade Holland and the Nazis occupy Amsterdam. And it's just interesting. Again, I'm just, I just know a little bit about her, but it seems she made a couple big choices. One of them was, it seems to implement some of what she learned in the Sermon on the Mount. She refused to hate even her enemies. She knew responding to hate with hate would only allow hate to win. So she refused to hate even her Nazi enemies. She also refused to hide. She did not judge others for hiding. But for her and her walk with God, she refused to hide. She felt called to care for the sick, the weak, the poor, and even those in camps waiting for the trains to go to the horrific camps. In her diary, she writes, listen to this, occupied Nazi Amsterdam. As life becomes harder and more threatening, it also becomes richer because the fewer expectations we have, the more the good things of life become unexpected gifts that we accept with gratitude. This is a cultural Jew in Nazi-occupied Amsterdam. The more good things of life become unexpected gifts that we accept with gratitude. Wow. (laughs) Well, she eventually was arrested and put on a train to Auschwitz, 70 people to a cattle car with nothing but a bucket for their sanitary needs for a three-day journey. It said that when she was on the train, she wrote a postcard to a Christian family that had befriended her. In the postcard, she wrote, opening the Bible at random, I find this, the Lord is my high tower. (laughs) And she thanked them for their kindness that they had shown her. And a farmer found the postcard in a field and delivered it to the family. Well, at the age of 29 in Auschwitz, in the gas chambers on November 30th, 1943, she died. Eddie Halisam did not survive Auschwitz, but her diary did. And in probably her most memorable passage, just even as you Google, it's like, it seems like the one that comes up the most. She writes this. Sometimes when I stand in some corner of the camp, again in Auschwitz, my feet planted on your earth, my eyes raised toward your heaven, tears sometimes run down my face. Tears of deep emotion and gratitude. I want to be right there, right in the thick of what people call horror and still be able to say, life is beautiful. And now I lie here in a corner parched and dizzy and feverish and unable to do a thing. Yet I am also with the jasmine and with that piece of sky beyond my window. For once we have begun to walk with God, you need only keep on walking with God and all of life becomes one long stroll. Life is beautiful. Joy is possible. Peace is real. And sorrow makes room for thanksgiving. And this is just bonus. Today was my golden psalm day. What that means is uh, I pray a psalm every day and I pray Psalm 23 every day. And today I did Psalm 23 twice. (laughs) So when Eddie Halisam says, 
she's begun to walk with God and all of life becomes one long stroll. And I'm praying Psalm 23 this morning and I read the words, goodness and mercy will follow you all of your days. Look, if you've made your life one long stroll with God, you need to know that mercy and goodness are following you all of your days. Not some of your days. All of your days. You are being followed all of your life by goodness and mercy. Goodness and mercy are the footprints of a God who will never leave you or forsake you. And the more we learn this, the more we'll be a people who has a swimming pool ready to capture the joy that God wants to pour into our hearts so that we can bring his life into this world. Amen? All right, will you bow your heads? I want to pray a pretty particular prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we are not praying that you make all circumstances work in our favor or that our joy will never be mingled with grief. Instead, we pray that you yourself would shield us. That as lesser delights dissolve in the face of pain, we might slowly find where enduring joy lies. And we pray that far under the surface of our lives, however easy or arduous, there would be a deep source of joy, a constant current of love that will never run dry. We pray that we would be a people who sorrow honestly. That we would be a people who create space for the Holy Spirit to draw near and comfort us, and that we would find our true peace and our only peace in Jesus. Amen.